Welcome to the pre-show. Welcome to the pre-show. Otherwise known as episode one of Welcome to F1. (laughs) So, are you feeling better about this past weekend's race? No. No. No, in fact, in fact, earlier today, before we hopped on this call, uh-huh. I'd listened to all the in-car audios. Yeah. And it oh, shows wow. you it was more messed up than even what we saw and heard. Okay, so let's 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 quickly review for all of the the music because there's a there is a tie because uh, in terms of our podcast and, and F1 uh, and and the the relationship between F1 and, and music is that you're a huge F1 fan and have been for years and have gone to races. Um, and that's probably, I think that's the tie-in. That's, that's the relationship. <laughs> Never mind the F- Formula One drivers that love to listen to. That love to listen to, to, to music that you like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Daniel Ricardo, yes, who, who loves who loves. That's correct. Yes, I was listening to this this past weekend. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let's Cardinals. let's review. There's about five or six laps left in the race. Uh, we have uh, in the lead defending world champion. Um, sorry, what's his name again? Again, I'm the first Hamilton. time. Lewis Hamilton. Uh, behind him are three or four cars that he has lapped. Five, I believe. Five cars that he has lapped. And behind those cars is... Uh, the person in second place uh, who uh, is racing for Red Bull. And his name is? Max Verstappen. Max Verstappen. And ahead of them, or behind them, but ahead of them on the track, there's an accident. Well, first of all, you have to make the statement that at that point, Lewis is 11 seconds ahead Okay, yes, okay. And cruising and cruising to victory. Cruising That's to victory, to 11 seconds ahead. Um, no way that Max Verstappen is, is catching up. He's got to pass all of these other cars. And then he's got to catch up with, with Lewis Hamilton, um, who's cruising. You're right. And then there's an accident. And the accident results in an actual safety car coming out on the track, which no car is allowed to pass. And so everyone now bunches up. Well, before you get to that, everyone oh at goodness, that point is starting to bunch more. up. There's more. Yeah. Everyone is supposed to bunch up at that point. Yeah. Um, but because of the distances between everybody, mm-hmm. <sighs> Lewis is now 11 seconds ahead of Max. Lewis is on very, very old tires. Max has already had one free pit stop before this. One, sorry, one free pit stop? Yeah, free pit stop. As in, like, Lewis, basically Max did whatever Lewis didn't do. So Lewis is on old, old, old tires at this point. Yes. Five, four laps remaining. Yeah. <clears throat> so if Lewis goes into the pits, Max takes over the lead. Yeah. And assuming they don't start again, game over. Yeah. He'd be too far back. Yeah. So, so Max comes in because he's so far ahead of signs in third place. Uh huh. That he basically gets another free pit stop. So he's now had two free pit stops. So then now they're bunching up. And there's five mm. cars between the two of them. Five cars. <clears throat> and and generally speaking, yeah. according to the rules of Formula One, 
Yeah. They let the lapped cars pass, all lapped cars, not just some. Okay. They let all lapped cars pass, and then they have to go to the back of the pack. Yeah. And then the safety car comes in, and then they race. But there's no time for that, because there's only a couple of laps left. Yeah. So the call is that the five cars are not going to pass. Nobody's going to pass. Nobody's going to pass. No one's going to pass. They don't have time to do it. They don't have time to do that and then bring it in, and they want to let them race. Then at the last second, the call is let the five cars pass. Safety car in. Race. Lewis is a sitting duck. That's it. So Uh everything that had been worked on for that race or worked for that race was thrown out the window because the FIA and F1 decided to break their own rules so that they could throw the rule book out the window so that Netflix will have an excellent product next year. And more fans will join in. It comes down to money. Hmm? Yeah, because more more fans are now drawn into this drama. Entertainment. Entertainment. It's not sport anymore. It's entertainment. Entertainment. So so that's what it is. It's all, you know, it's not all, but it's largely about making sure that Netflix has the content to make the most entertaining, entertaining, not sport, entertaining television show possible. Yeah. Sure. As I said, as I yeah. said, yes. numerous times, numerous yeah. times. Am yeah. I a Lewis fan? Yes. Am I a Max fan? No. Would I have congratulated Max if he won on his merit? Hundred percent. I went back. Mm. I actually, purposely, I had the conversation DM with a friend of mine who's in, who I've known her since she was a kid in racing. Yeah. And and we had we had a conversation about it, and I'm like, I even went back to look at um, Sebastian and and uh, uh, Nico Rosberg. To uh-huh. make sure that I, because I, I wasn't cheering for them, but I did. I cheered. I like congratulations, and then, and then even you know when Seb did, I think his fourth. I'm like, who thinks he can't go on for more? Like this kid's amazing. So you know, again, didn't cheer for him. Cheered for other guys, but yeah, I can hand long props for good, All well, right. well done job. So, what should have happened? Yeah, is if they really wanted to let them race. Yeah, they should have pulled them in for a three lap sprint. But what would have happened then is Lewis would have been allowed to put on softs because, like the week before in Saudi Arabia, Max on the red flag put on new tires. And so he was very racy at the end. Well, and didn't part with her. And didn't lose his spot, I'm guessing. Correct, because they were in, they were red flags, so they're in the pits waiting to restart the race. So what they should have done is brought everybody into the pits, red flagged it, everybody soups up, and you go racing. And if Max could beat Lewis on a three-lap sprint, awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. That's awesome. I wouldn't have been happy because he lost his 11-second lead based on it, but hey, things happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. So let him go race. But that's, that wasn't let him go race. And the race director, Massey, said, we're, you know, to, to Toto on the radio, you know, it's a race or we're racing or let him race or whatever. It's like, let's not let him race. That's not, that's nothing. That has nothing to do with the racing. Interesting. That is yeah. making the best possible entertaining product for Netflix that you can. So I'm about now to concede that F1 is a sport based on what you just told me. Because all sp- should be a sport, but what you just learned the past weekend is it's an entertainment piece. It's a television show. <laughs> But Greg, if we take I'm a look there. at all major sports, uh, and I can only look in North America, um, all sports are doing things to attract more viewers and become more entertaining, right? So uh, baseball is trying to speed up the game and not allow as many pitching changes. Um, basketball is trying to do away with um shooters kicking their legs out and calling fouls yep. um and nascar and champ car years ago figured out the green white checker the green white checker is if there's anything that happens close to the end of the race you pull them in yeah and then you let them go out there for a green a white and a checker let them race yeah interesting that's that's, that's fair that's fun that's entertaining that's a hell of an entertainment piece what you just saw was not entertaining Except for Netflix, that'll love to use it because they <laughs> get better television content out of it. There you go. 
And that's episode one of Welcome to F1. <laughs> Hi, the following podcast is brought to you by Radical Road Brewery, the best craft beer in the heart of Leslieville. Find them at 1177 Queen Street East. That's Radical Road Brewery. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name's uh, Jason Schneider. I am a Canadian music historian. And uh, we're here on Welcome to the Music today to talk about the first book um, that Michael and I and Ian Jack wrote called Have Not Been the Same, The Can Rock Renaissance, 1985-95. My name is Michael Barkley. I helped write that famous book called Have Not Been the Same with Jason Snyder and Ian A.D. Jack. And you're listening to Welcome to the Music! Welcome, welcome, welcome. Awesome. Thank you guys for, for coming on. I really appreciate it. Our pleasure. And yeah. and th- most of all, thank you for the chapter on Neil Young and Crazy Horse. That's He's awesome. gonna spend the whole show. He's gonna spend the whole show talking about this. Like that was Jason, you got this then? That's uh I'm, I'm out. You, <laughs> you did not have to like that. There should be a book. Who's writing the book? On on just that that is that was phenomenal. By the way, thank you, Jason. I guess. Well, well, okay. Well, I should probably say um, the one thing that we decided to do um, was to kind of you know keep people guessing as to who wrote which which chapter. We didn't really want to uh, reveal you know who who focused on what. Um, I guess over the years, you know, people have sort of drawn conclusions, but. Uh, but, it's been 20 uh, years. I just started telling people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I got, well, okay. Well, I guess I can say now that um, having, having Neil Young in, in, in the book was mainly my, uh, my, um, you know, prerogative just because, you know, I was obsessed at the time. I guess I'm still obsessed, but um, it actually was, you know, good timing because, um you know, I think at that point, Neil was, you know, at, at a creative peak and um, was influencing a lot of uh, Canadian artists. Absolutely. And and I think you guys didn't talk too much about this, but I th- or, or maybe you did and I missed it. But I think Ragged Glory is the beginning of uh, of of the sound that came out of Seattle. And I'm not just saying that lightly because it's like timing is everything. And, and I know, you know, Nirvana, you know, they had released an album earlier, uh, their first album, but anyways, we'll get, we'll get to that. And I think that's when Greg is going to go to sleep uh, when, when we get in, in, in depth on that stuff. But um, since you've written this book, um, has there been any talk about, um, I don't know whether it's a second book because it is, you know, it's, it's the can rock Renaissance. Right. So there can't be a second book uh, saying, oops, we made a mistake. This is now the Can Rock Renaissance. I just wrote uh, that book, actually. Or can you? <laughs> so here, here's the deal. First of all, we should point out that this is the 20th anniversary of the book. Yeah. Uh, September 2001. Um, and then in September 2011, or actually, was it earlier in the year? I think it might have been April. Anyway, in 2011, we, we reissued, reissued it because it had gone out of print. Yeah. We cleaned it up a bit. Uh, made it better because we were older and wiser and better writers. Um, apologies to anyone who has the first edition. Uh, put an amazing new cover on it. I love the new cover design so much uh, by Ingrid Paulson. Um, and then after that, uh, Jason wrote the prequel of sorts, a book called Whispering Pines, um, which basically uh, starts with like Wolf Carter and Hank Snow. And even before that, like, uh, and then takes it right up to, you know, Ian and Sylvia, Gordon Lightfoot, Joni, Leonard, Neil, wow. and and then I just finished writing a book called Hearts on Fire, which is about 2005, which I think is kind of the sequel to Have Not Been the Same. So okay. it's kind of like a, you know, Star Wars twisted uh, <laughs> release schedule chronology. So the middle book came out first. It's actually, it's exactly like Star Wars. The middle book came out first. Yeah. Jason wrote the prequel. And I wrote the sequel. Wow. So this, yeah, I thought about it that way. I wow. hadn't until the words came out of my mouth. <laughs> Look at that. 
So is is the sequel out now, Michael? I'm sorry, I, I uh, was not aware no, of that. Comes, maybe I did. Okay, comes out in April. I I, I just um, handed in my proofreading notes. So ah, it'll, it'll be out in four months. What's the working title on that? Hearts on Fire. Hearts on Named Fire. After the uh, Wolf Parade song. Okay. Interesting. All right. Um, I, th- I think it was the second chapter in this book where you guys talked about CBC, uh, much music, campus radio. Um, you know, I, I, until that chapter, I had never really thought about sort of the forces that came to to really help uh, new music, if for lack of a better term, you know, be really be discovered. Um, campus radio is a big thing. T- tell me. If- if you guys can talk a little bit about that, like the importance of campus radio for some of these Canadian bands that you would otherwise not hear anywhere else. Yeah, well, that was that was uh, Michael's area for sure. He really, uh, you know, captured, um, you know, the whole that that whole period well. So I'll, I'll let him talk um, about that. I don't think I realized it until I started researching. I mean. Uh, we're both born in 71 and um, so we were kind of teenagers, early twenties during the period we're writing about. And uh, I just kind of assumed campus radio had been around forever. I didn't even really know. And then when I started researching, I realized, no, it was kind of like late seventies, early eighties. But then like, I think CIUT in Toronto went on the air in 85. Um, CITR in Vancouver, I'm pretty sure was, no, that might've been 86 because the first song they played was have not been the same by slow. Um, but anyway, like basically in the mid '80s, right when we our narrative starts, was when campus radio really exploded across the country. And if you just think about what kind of music get, that gets played on campus radio, it would have been very hard to hear that beforehand. Like before that, if you're in, you were into underground music, it was basically like dubbed cassettes passed down to you from your older siblings, you know, um, or or in the classroom kind of thing. Uh, really. Um, underground networks and then once it's on radio suddenly it's a lot more accessible also in the mainstream level much music played really weird stuff like at the beginning of much music there were so few videos especially so few canadian videos to fill their mandate um you know you could like put on a puppet show in your basement uh and then they broadcast it you know like there's a shadowy men video that is literally like just like hand puppets and it's amazing Um, yeah yeah well, they, they and they 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 had to create their own kind of grant system, you know, just to make sure videos would be made for them to play. I mean, that's how uh, kind of you know bare bones it was. Yeah, I mean, the pursuit of happiness is the most famous uh, success story of that era. But even like um, you think of like early Katie Lang, uh, I think they went to to shoot her like because they're like we need footage of this woman, so they like just set up and shot some live footage and that's what would get played all the time. And that was the video. Wow. And that was the video. And they would do that with a lot of acts. I mean, then there's, and, and video really helped build this mythology too. And then it was like, Oh man, there's all this really weird, interesting stuff from across Canada, coast to coast. That's super interesting and, uh, and, and, and weird and fascinating. And then they would play stuff over and over. So that's, you'd see these people all the time. And then like things like the, the tragically hip live at the marquee moon and Halifax, like that would get broadcast all the time. And that would have its own mythology develop around it. Um, so yeah, between campus radio and much music, I think those are really important. And then um, there were also the weird ass CBC shows that I really love that I think uh, were also big. Yeah. yeah well, I, yeah, sorry. I just wanted to, to add, um, I think that's kind of the, the bigger picture um, is that at that time it was all about really sort of connecting, you know, the country musically, you know, from coast to coast for the first time. And, you know, all these factors played into it, you know, radio and much music and, you know, bands actually going out there on their own and kind of creating a, 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 a national touring circuit for the first time. So it was all these, these factors sort of coming together in the mid to late 80s, that yeah, it, it it created a national scene rather than a you know kind of group of disparate scenes. Yeah, I, I will I will say as a, as a musician in the mid '80s traveling across Canada, it, you know the the well before we were even traveling touring, 
you know, in Toronto, it'd be like, you'd be knocking on the doors of CKLN, you'd be knocking on the doors of CIUT, you want to get play, you want to get play, you want to get play from that perspective. But then, you know, when we were out on the road, you know, if when we're in, I don't know, wherever, St. John's, like you're going to the college radio and you're, you're doing the interview and you're, you're, you know, chatting it up. And um, that's a huge, huge part, I know, for me, for us in terms of getting the word out. So, yeah. What, big, like, big, what, big made it, what made it so easy, Greg, to like, why was let's go to the college guys and chat with them rather than going because to you're, because you're trying to get you're trying to get you're, you're trying to get young people out. It's like we've shared the story about, you know, back then, well, more probably early 90s, I guess, maybe late 80s, early 90s. I mean, you know, we've talked about we would we would go out to Durham College. Um, we were from Whitby. So that was, that was our home base. And we would go to Durham College and we would sell tickets to the tour bus. And what we would do, we ended up ending up getting it at two, two tour buses. And it was like, I don't know, whatever it was just to cover the cost of the bus. And we'd bring in one or two busloads of, you know, Durham College students into Lee's Palace. It was a captive audience. And, and as soon as Craig saw that, he's like, you guys have one Saturday a month. You're good to go. Like, all right, cool. Because, again, it was just like leveraging us. So, so you know, if we're out east, you know, you want to get into the college radio. You want to get that working because that's where you're, you know. The rock radio, yeah, we did that too. But the the college kids are going to come out and potentially check out your show more than the rock radio. At least with that, yeah. And unless you have a super important. slick recording, you're not going to get on rock radio. Yeah, yeah so exactly. If you're a young band with with a demo tape, uh, campus radio is going to play it, and and uh, you know the Q and sevens of the world are not. So, yep. um, that, that that's your your automatic entry point, really. Yep. Interesting. Yep. Is I now I didn't do the research on this. Do they still exist? Does call it does campus radio? Yes. It still does. Yeah, despite Doug Ford uh, trying to pull all the funding out of uh, out from underneath them a couple of years ago, he failed, by the way. But um, oh, good. <laughs> it does exist. And it's really challenging, though, because, I mean, radio itself is challenging, right? Um, yeah, of course. People, people are distracted by uh, podcasts and they're distracted by, uh, you know, uh, the streaming playlists and everything else. Um, it's super challenging. And, and hats off to everybody still working in Canvas Radio and making it work. Uh, it's it's bare bones and it's, it's a real tough slog. Um, I mean, a lot of them also uh, stream as well, you know, and I, I've listened to shows from across country, across North America. Um, uh, there's great stuff out there, but not a lot of people know about it. And uh, yeah. I have funding drives every year and, and I encourage you to keep them going. Even, even the independence, like if you think about back in the day with, with the spirit of radio, I mean, mm-hmm. that was slightly above a college station. I mean, from the perspective of, you know, advertisers and, and you know, listeners and, um, and now they've grown up. So you don't even, to me, we don't even really today have that, um, that mosaic format that CFNY was back in the day that gave us, you know, the height of jazz on a Sunday and, uh, you know, all these amazing shows that were almost college, but ready for prime time. Yeah. And I think the Toronto market was really lucky to have that station. I mean, you hear about people from elsewhere. Um, uh, you know, I have friends from around Ontario, they'd go to Toronto and then they'd like tape CFNY for hours at a time and then bring it back and pass those tapes around, you know? Yeah. So. Wow. Isn't Greg, isn't there a, like, I don't know if it's the rock and roll hall of fame, but there's a place, maybe it's in Seattle that has the spirit of radio stuff. Yeah, Marsden, 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 some of the spirit of radio stuff is like the CFNY stuff is down the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. It is. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah. Because oh. there's also that place in Seattle, the Experience Music oh, Project. Maybe I'm thinking of that. No, I think, I think, I think it's in both. If I'm not mistaken, oh, wow. I'd have to go back to, you're right. I, I first saw it at the Experience Music Project, Paul Allen's place out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know there was something there, but I'm, I'm, I'm 90% sure either Marzen or CFNY or, or Ed, I said Ed, CFNY or there's something in the rock and roll hall of fame as well. And I can even picture the room, but anyway. Speaking of David Marsden and rock and roll hall of famers, uh, you do know that he managed Richard Manuel's first band. Is that correct, Jason? The, the, in Stratford or the, the started with an R, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, that, uh, yeah, that might've been another guy. I don't know if David's that old. He he's might that old. Yeah. All right. No, he's talked about that. Yeah. 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 Okay. Anyway, well, sorry, right, little, right, tangent. Um, little tangent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I caught me off guard there. Anyway. What is, so in the book, I know it's Toronto centric, uh, Spirit of Radio, CF and Y. But w- what role did they play in, in all of this? Is, is, have we, um, is, is it all myth because we, we've sort of told stories over and over and over again over the years because we are in Toronto? Um, or 
did they really play a huge role in, in helping to create the sounds that that became so popular in, in many people's uh, ears? That's hard to well, say. I think, I, no, sorry. Ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I think, I think, uh, you know, it got to a point where, you know, every, every major city had, had a station eventually, you know, along the same lines of, of, of CFNY. I mean, you know, if we want to talk about, you know, Vancouver or Montreal, I mean, you know, even the, even the mainstream rock stations at that time had a lot looser playlists, um, you know, well, I've sort of been kind of knee, knee deep in Vancouver music history with this, you know, project, current project I'm working on. So, um, so radio in, in, in Vancouver has always played a huge, a huge part in, in breaking new music there. Um, they actually had the first FM station in, in Canada, which I, I didn't realize until, until recently. Um, and even, even their, their AM station, the big AM station back in the sixties where, uh, Terry David Mulligan got his start. I mean, they were, you know, they were playing all kinds of, uh, you know, great kind of, you know, San Francisco psychedelic stuff before everybody else. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I think, yeah. Um, every, every city, I think in Montreal, was it a uh, Shome, Shome FM? They were kind of Prague in the seventies. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know much about them in the eighties, but I do think that CFNY, I mean, I think what Jason's talking about is, um, kind of the alternative time of the early 90s, people kind of caught up to where CFNY was at that point. But in the early 80s, CFNY was really all over the place with reggae shows and jazz shows and, um, uh, you know, uh, techno shows, um, way more freeform than they became later on. Like it definitely got codified later on. And I think when it got codified, that's when it started to be emulated a bit more. Um, but I think Greg's right. It, uh, at the beginning, um, at the period of time when you know neil pert was inspired to write his song it, it was really um quite free form and like you said a more professional version of campus radio yeah, yeah. i've always heard about brand new waves brave people talk waves. talking about uh brave new Waves. sorry um i've always heard people talk about that show uh in in high regard um but i don't i, I don't know if you guys had a chance you know outside of researching it uh, I had a chance to ever listen to that show, uh, and if you had, I'd, I'd love to, love to hear what you know what you remember about uh, about uh, Brave New Waves. Well, here's my story. I actually ended up working there many years later. Wow! Um, after after have not been the same came out, but my okay. story is I was at my uh, family cottage north of Peterborough. My uncle, who lived not far from there, right in the middle of the woods, he's like, "You like interesting music? There's this show on CBC." And my family never listened to CBC, like just not something we did. Okay, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then one night, I'm just scanning the dial. Again, I'm literally in the middle of the woods, and I hear this crazy saxophone and this wild woman singing and really like primitive drums. I'm like, "What is going?" It was like an alien signal. I'm like, "What is happening?" And uh, that band was called Condition we write about in the book in the Montreal chapter and the show is Brave New Waves. Brent Bambury was hosting at the time and it just, it blew my mind. And for most of my teenage life, I fell asleep listening to that show every night. Like it was that mind blowing. You'd hear like, that's the first place I would have heard like public enemy or the dead Kennedys or Jonathan Richmond or skinny puppy or Katie Lang for that matter. I heard blue rodeo on like, it was a real wild mix, like Laurie Anderson, all that stuff. Uh, and and they played a lot of independent Canadian stuff. And for a lot of them, um, it's one thing to get on your local campus station, but to get on a national show, that was big. And I had bands tell me when we were doing the book that, you know, yeah, like when we showed up in Thunder Bay, everybody at the show was there because they heard us on Brave New Waves because that was the only wow. place they heard us, right? Or when we played Brandon, Manitoba, or when we played Medicine Hat, you know. Um, so that was a, another really big connector uh, just because it was the cbc and because it's late night and late night radio as i'm sure you know has its own kind of crowd or it did at one point it's something i really miss yeah uh, you know you're just in a different uh much like late night tv you know you're just in a different uh mind frame when you're when you're listening to it um, yeah it's all yeah. repeats now yeah you never stumble across anything good on late night tv anymore it's garbage and yeah. same thing with late night radio like now late night cbc radio i think is all canned I don't even yeah. think there's a host. I think it's just like a, a stream they turn on, um, which is really sad to me. 
But yeah, it's all the daytime shows repackaged as as nighttime shows now. It's yeah. uh, it's really sad because you, you'd you'd experience everything. So whether you know if you were a comedy fan, you hear late night comedy um, and theater of the mind. I think on on uh, on ten fifty on Sunday right. nights, uh, you would hear uh, like Jim Richards. You got his start on like late night uh, radio on I think it was on the fan. Um, and now he's like a, you know, a big shot at, at CFRB or, or, you know, like music, you just hear the, the wildest stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you still do on campus radio sometimes. Yeah. 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 But sorry, all that is to say, this is a fascinating like Petri dish of a time where, um, uh, really interesting weirdo music really started to bubble up. Um, and, and not weirdo music too. Like, like there was kind of this uh, folk revival happening in the eighties, like rock bands started playing acoustic guitars again. Um, uh, you know, there were a lot of uh, fascinating women, whether it was like Mary Margaret O'Hara or like Crash Vegas or, you know, Jane Sibbery, um, uh, Cowboy Junkies, uh, a lot of uh, uh, country influence coming in. Um, and then you have people that come out of all of that. People like Sarah McLaughlin comes out of like the weirdo network records you know, a label that builds itself on skinny puppy. And here comes this woman really headed toward the mainstream. And then she becomes a superstar kind of at the end of the period that we're talking about. Um, the hip become really big. Blue rodeo become really big. Um, and then you have weird stories like the, the story of men without hats, which is not something that I knew a lot about before we went into this, but our co-author Ian Jack uh, writes about this quite a bit. And so there's a band that had like a, a almost a fluke, huge pop hit, right. That is still a bit of a punchline, you know, on the Simpsons or whatever. And then they took all that money they made. Well, not all of it. I'm sure they kept some of it. They took a lot of the money they made and they produced records for like Voivod, this weirdo prog metal band from Jean Pierre. They put it into like this country band, three o'clock train. They put it into, um, I'm trying to remember where the, oh, uh, the Doughboys. They also had it that were close with um, all these weird little tentacles in Montreal. Like they really invested back in the community. That's awesome. And, and help lift Montreal up, you know, much the same way that a completely different band, uh, Godspeed You Black Emperor would years later, right. In terms of like building infrastructure in Montreal. Um, or one could argue the way that, uh, you know, broken social scene did years later in Toronto, like building a label and building a, a whole scene around them as well. Um, yeah. and, and people, you know, think men without hats are a bit of a joke or whatever, but it's, but learning their story, um, through Ian's research and writing in this book, uh, was was really revelatory for me. I, I will say, I will say, stating that none of that hats is a bit of a joke is 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 not a, is a killer for me. I'm just going to let you know. I'm just talking about other people's perception. I know, no, I know, I know, I know. Have you seen but the live? Sorry, They're really oh, yeah. good live. Oh yeah, They're great. Yeah, yeah. Ivan, Ivan is Ivan still totally ridiculous it. and amazing. Like yeah, he's yeah. just a. He's yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to go there, sort of let's talk about Montreal, um, get in a little deeper because, um, you know, for, as a kid growing up again in Whitby, going to the Star Club in Oshawa, and I remember seeing Deja Voodoo for my first time. Like, holy shit. And it's like, they come back, we go bring buds out. You got to check out this band. And then I don't know if you know the Star Club, it's this tiny little basement thing in, in, in Oshawa. And I think you could, you could order two drinks, either vodka or black label. It was one or the other. That's all you can order at the place. Black label. And, that, that dates you. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, but yeah, I want to talk about Montreal because I mean, there's, there's so there's, there were, like you, you talked about very, there were different scenes and, and there was, you know, different times where bands were coming out of it. And like, what was it about Montreal? What was it about Montreal and the music that came out? Because again, it's so varied from now that has deja vu to, you know, all over the place. What isn't it about Montreal? <laughs> Sorry, Jason, what were you going to say? Oh, no, I was just going to say, you know, well, since you, you live there, you probably have a better perspective, but I mean, well, I, I, I guess to me, you know, it it always you know it it always seemed exotic it was it yeah. was like like it didn't it didn't feel you know you know it was obviously growing up as as a kid you know it's you know a big city in in canada but it, to me it, it never felt like uh you know part of my awareness of what of what canada was you know it was it was more like you know i i, I perceived it more like europe so so yeah. whenever i would hear mom well, plus the you know the canadians were my favorite team too um <laughs> and that that always kind of you know set me apart from my friends but um 
but yeah, I, whenever I, I hear of anything coming out of Montreal or anything associated with Montreal, it always had this extra kind of, uh, you know, joie de vivre, I guess you'd say about it, you know? Are you saying it's a distinct society, Jason? <laughs> that's a whole other discussion isn't it now welcome yeah. to the politics <laughs> but, it, but it's um i mean historically it's, it's been uh cheap rent especially after uh the pq got elected in 76 77 um i can't remember um and all the money fled to toronto and then um uh, montreal was really it became an artist haven and you could do anything like even as late as as um the late nineties, like people were paying like a hundred bucks in rent, you know, for a mm-hmm. huge space where they could do whatever they want and make all the noise they want. And so that opens itself up to whatever kind of music you want. And there's not going to be just one kind of scene. There's going to be all kinds of things happening and artists and video makers and, you know, fashion people and, and all kinds of things uh, intermingling. Um, I'd say it was, it was that way for at least 30, 40 years. I mean, it's, it's been gentrified as much as anyone else lately, but it's, it's still probably the coolest uh, uh, city in the country. You know, I mean, you think about a city like Vancouver where people are just fleeing, like there are very few artists left there. I mean, I think about, you know, my favorite records of the last year or the year before that, like so few of them are from Vancouver because people have left um, and it's hard to like get practice space there. And that's becoming true of Toronto as well. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about the rehearsal factory closing and stuff like Montreal was a place that had space where you yeah. could do things and it was affordable. And that was true for a very long time. And it's kind of only starting to change somewhat recently. Um, but yeah, I and mean, you think about all the bands we just talked about around Man Without Hats. So first of all, you've got this, you know, uh, techno pop band and you've got like the Voivod and then you've got um, the Doughboys uh, punk rock. And then you've got like Mitsu totally turned pop. And then you've got yeah. this three o'clock train guy, total country stuff. Um yeah. Well, the thing I, the, yeah. The thing I always loved about Deja Voodoo too is, um, you know, I mean, they were, you know, they were a two-piece rock band before anyone yeah. could even kind of grasp that concept. I mean, their only their only peers, I guess, were um, this band from Athens, Georgia, called the uh, Flat Duo Jets, who were, you know, they were just guitar and drums too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even sure which came first, but but you know, the exact same time, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, just this whole this whole idea of, you know, you can have a band with just two people. Like that was, you know, nobody thought that way. And yeah. um and uh and then, you know, kind of, you know, along with that, you had, you know, the gruesomes who I always thought were great. They were doing this completely awesome, you know, garage rock revival stuff that nobody else was doing at that time. They were kind of way ahead of the curve and um yeah it was um yeah and then you know deja voodoo had their own label um og, og records which you know was another crucial element to um you know i guess providing this this, this beacon of hope for you know bands across the country you know to to actually put out records and you know one one of my favorite stories is uh that you know when the tragedy hip was still starting out, they sent their demo tape to Aug records and it got rejected. <laughs> oh, jeez, That's funny. Oh, because it was too slick. I think they sent like a big eight by 10 photo and Aug was like, we don't know what to do with these guys. These like they're on a different wavelength. <laughs> but Aug would put out these records called it came from Canada, um, which was, an, and they were just like all these weirdo garage bands that like condition was on there. Cowboy junkies were on there very early on. Oh. Uh, Shadowy men were on there. Um, Guilt Parade from New Brunswick, Jerry Jerry from Edmonton, um, all these bands from across the country. And, and the artwork was was funny and kind of 50s retro. The liner notes were great. We quote them at the beginning of our book. There's a great line there about like, trust me, all these bands are cool. Most of them probably don't even like each other and they probably have different <laughs> definitions of what cool is, but trust me, they're cool. Um, <laughs> and, and those compilations were really big for me. They put out five of them, uh, I think, between 1985 and 1990. Um, yeah, I was looking up like UICs on here. Oh, yeah, UIC. Yep. For some reason, I thought the um, I thought uh, Durango ninety five that became Purple Toads. I thought Purple Toads were on there, maybe not. Anyway, sorry, I digress. I so. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of which is to say a very exciting time, and, and and Montreal was 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 a hub for that, and people, and also Cargo Records actually was based in Montreal, right. and Cargo was the primary uh, distributor of independent records, um, and they would also put out. Um, 
uh, like No Means No out of Victoria, uh, who were huge in Europe. I don't think Canadians understand how big No Means No were in Europe hmm. and down the west coast of the States. Um, Grant Lawrence of the Smugglers told me that like they would tour in Europe and see No Means No t-shirts everywhere and posters. He was like, wow, I thought this was just a BC thing. I had no idea. Um, wow. So anyway, No Means No put a, a change of heart, put a records on cargo um and shadowy men too okay when cargo went under in 97 it was really damaging for the independent music scene and a lot of labels were like you know they had a lot of uh money owed to them and um it almost sunk it almost sunk a lot of people when that went under we've got the whole chapter on on indie um on indie labels and 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 you know aug records of course is, is heavily featured in that chapter um What's what's the important like without the labels? You know, we talked about campus radio, we've talked about um, CBC, much music. What happens with Canadian music generally, or maybe it's Canadian indie music without these these labels? Um. Well, yeah. I mean, well, I think I I think the interesting thing with um, a lot of the uh, a lot of the indie labels was that you know a bunch of them started just as kind of like an, an adjunct to, you know, somebody's record store, you know, it's, yeah. it's just like, you know, the plot of, you know, high, high fidelity. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's just basically, um, you know, music fans, like music obsessives who, you know, they fall in love with these bands in their city and, and mm-hmm. you know, they just want to help them out. And I mean, that's, that, that's really how, you know, the Vancouver scene got, got started um, because, you know, the big, you know, the, the, the indie labels that spread it up there, they were all attached to, to record stores. You know, it started with, uh, you know, Quint- Quintessence Records. That was, that was the shop that became Zulu, um, which I believe still operates its label today. Um, and um, there was another store called Friends Records. That was more punk. They, they worked a lot with DOA and, subhumans and more of the, the hardcore bands but um but yeah i mean and you know i'm, I'm trying to think of some other examples across the country but, uh, there's scratch um, in uh, vancouver as well later on and then in toronto um fringe records was run out of the record peddler right um, which used to be across from maple leaf gardens for a long time uh moved around a bit but um i mean these days blue fog has run out of rotate this uh hmm. um that's kind of like a an eric's trip associated label um uh, yeah, I'm sure there are others too, but but like, where would these acts be without these labels? That's really hard to say. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of people in the last 20 years have like, well, what's what is the use of a label? And I think it is, um, I think it is an identity um, for bands. It helps, uh, it helps fans. It helps the press. It helps radio people kind of process, um, you know, what a scene is, what associations are, uh, social relations. Uh, you know, all the I, I like you know, all these other bands on this label. So maybe I'll like this new band I've never heard of because they're also on the label. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the frustrating things about this time though, is that not a lot of it really did um, make it out of Canada, which is different than mm-hmm. like Jason's first book is basically about everybody who left and became very successful. Right. Yeah. Um, and then this book is largely about when Canada realized like, it doesn't matter if the rest of the world gives a shit or not. This stuff is amazing. Yeah. Um, and you know, that plays out in the trajectory of Blue Rodeo and the tragedy of the hip, obviously. Um, uh, Sloan left. So Sloan certainly breaks out. Um, and Cowboy Junkies certainly break out, you know, pursuit of happiness do well. There, there are exceptions, skinny puppy, you know, internationally known, um, not huge numbers necessarily, but like for that crowd, uh, industrial music, pre nine inch nails, like skinny puppy is it right. That the, them and ministry are the two main, but a lot of the people, I'm sorry, my computer keeps dinging. Um, uh, a lot of people didn't really break out and that, that was kind of frustrating. And, and you know, I, I've off, I've wondered this my whole life and this is part of what my new book is about, because again, it's about people who broke out again. It's about new pornographers is about arcade fires, about Godspeed features. Like they managed to leapfrog over Canada and get out. Um, mm-hmm. People in this book, not so much. And I, I, I like, I'm not sure why, like, uh, UK American people didn't really write about these bands a lot. Um, none of these bands were getting signed to labels like Rough Trade or Merge or, uh, you know, my brother's calling. I am. 
How do I stop that? Um, <laughs> sorry. Uh, sure. I, mean, were, I mean, there were some examples. I mean, it, it's it, it's not like the labels weren't weren't trying, or, or, or more probably more more accurately, it's probably not like the artist managers weren't trying hmm. to get you know to get major you know labels outside of Canada and interested. I mean, you know, Andrew Cash, he became he he was the first Canadian artist to sign with Island. Um, of course, after you know the the pursuit of happiness, after they got some notoriety, they signed with the uh, Chrysalis, I believe, which is a British label. Um, and then you know they got international di- di- distribution. So, I mean, there were in that course, same with the Cowboy Junkies, they signed with RCA, largely on the strength of you know Lou Reed's endorsement. Um, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, there were there were you know, examples of that happening, but, um, but yeah, but, but, but for some artists it was, yeah, it was just a case of, uh, you know, American labels just saying, you know, yeah, this is fine, but we don't think it's going to sell down here. And then the other big example is Sarah McLaughlin, who, um, I mean, network records, Canadian label, independent Canadian label. They, they were distributed in Canada through, I think EMI at first, later Sony. And then she had Different major label in the States, but Network was her manager, Terry McBride. And then when, uh, I'm trying to think of what came first. I guess it was, no, it was Fumbling Toward Ecstasy, the, the album with Possession on it. Um, uh, that came out and did okay. And then her American label was like, okay, you're done. Uh, move on to the next. And they were like, no, 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 no. This is a good record. This is a hit record. And she worked her ass off for pretty much two years straight playing the States constantly. Like not, cause that's the other thing. So many people pin their hopes on the record company and when the record company gives up, then your career's over. Mm. And Terry McBride was like, screw that. We're going to work our ass off, build our audience organically. So that when her next record came out, the huge one uh, surfacing with sweet surrender and all that, um, she already had a huge fan base. And then that record, like, shot out of the gate and multi-million instantly right um so that was just a question of canadian doggedness and refusing to take uh no for an answer from the american record label you know um well and then and then there was um yeah i i I just want to mention the example of blue rodeo then too like with their with their third album um casino that was when i believe they yeah they got signed in america to was it atlantic i don't know or yep yeah and um, but 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 that was a case where okay here now they had an American deal but now they had all these people down there telling them okay you gotta work with this person you gotta do this you gotta sound like this and um, you know I you know Casino is still you know it's a solid record but it really you know it it it, it does have that more kind of um, you know pre-planned um feel about it i guess i don't know if that's the right word the way way to describe it but it really stands out from the rest of their catalog i think in that way just because they suddenly had all these all these people telling them what they should be doing it's a very tight pop record and i think it's very successful at doing that like i i do love that record but you're right it's very different than all their others um and i think it was calculated that way and i think like you know i'm pretty sure their drummer didn't actually play on half of it and like uh, I'm pretty sure they cut all of Bob Wiseman's solos down to four bars from 64. <laughs> you know? um, uh, there's a lot of things uh, going on with that record. But I mean, they also, you know, Blue Rodeo got to play The Tonight Show and they backed up Meryl Streep in a major Hollywood movie based on Carrie Fisher's memoir. Like there's yeah. weird little things about Blue Rodeo's career too people don't know. And then, of course, then there's the tragic makeup, right? And um, they, uh, again, like things just luck and, and timing and the press never seemed to give them the time of day but they just kept going back and working and working and working and they would invest the money they made in Canada going down there and then they did really well in like Boston and Texas and Arizona Chicago Seattle but like all these kind of different spots that don't really connect on the map so they'd like you know play like 2000 seat theater one night and then like a club that for 50 the next night and then a club for a thousand the next night like Overall, successful, but like really patchy. Um, I mean, I talk about the, I talk about this a lot in the hip book. Like, there's this huge misconception among Canadians, like, oh, they didn't make it there. It's like, well, they did better than ninety five percent of other bands from here. 
Um, and they did have a career down there and they had a lot of American fans. But mm-hmm. as Canadians, if we don't read about them in Rolling Stone, if we don't read about them in Spin, if we don't see them, you know, on, on Letterman or whatever, then we don't, we think nothing is happening. Um, yeah. and, and so there's different metrics of success. Um, and, and like I said, Jason's first book has people who have quite quantifiable measures of success. And, uh, and, and my new book about the next generation, the same thing, but this one, there's really, it's really all over the place. Some people did gangbusters business everywhere, like Sarah McLaughlin. And then you have your blue rodeos and your tragedy hips. And, and then you have your people who are just more influential and actually sold records. People like skinny puppy or on the opposite end of the spectrum, people like Daniel Anwar, like yeah. one of the most influential people of the eighties, sonically speaking is Daniel Anwar. And, um, I feel like he's really only started to get credit for that in the last 10, 15 years. Like, um, hmm. I feel like his critical stock has really gone up, but uh, I, I, I don't think he was. Uh, no, that's probably not true. Jason can speak more about that. I mean, that Dylan record and Emmy Lou and stuff. Um, anyway. Yeah, well, I never realized until, you know, seeing more kind of, the, you know, the, the American perspective of, of Lanois that, um, yeah, I mean, for, for a lot of music fans down there, they either love him or hate him, you know, he's, um, he's, he's, yeah, his, his sound is just so, you know, distinctive that, uh, I mean, it, it, it had a huge effect on, on so many people. I mean, um, you know, well, being involved in the, uh, the alt country scene as much as I am, you know, I, after he made the, um, the Emmy Lou Harris record wrecking ball, I mean, you can just, that's to me, that's a real dividing line. Like mm. albums that came out after that, after Wrecking Ball, you can, you know, you can hear that, that influence just, you know, wow. everywhere. So. And, yeah. his, and obviously his work with you too. I mean, you listen to the first three U2 records and the edge certainly has his own thing going on, but as soon as Lanois shows up, it's something totally different. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. We, we had uh, Mark Howard on. Uh, oh, nice. a bit back and it was just a fantastic conversation i mean we, guy, yeah. you know, we could have talked for hours just oh yeah yeah i think michael you made that introduction happen so thank you for that it was oh, uh it was great chatting you. chatting with him yep. so this 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 particular episode came about from a tweet that i put out i don't know if it was over in the summertime or something saying you know greg and i were chatting and you know we were talking about like 30 years ago just some amazing uh, music happened, whether it was in grunge or hard rock. And, and I think Jason, you shot me an email saying you saw this, you know, and said, Hey, let's talk about this. We, you know, we've got this book that's been out. Uh, uh, and, and so, and so I went on the Googles and I said, okay, Canadian albums from 1991. And there are a few, but there, there aren't a lot. And Greg and I decided, you know, let's focus on Canada because we've had, we, in terms of, you know, in the whole musical zeitgeist, everyone has been talking about um, the music, you know, coming out of, you know, grunge and, and, and hard rock uh, from 1991. Um, but we haven't specifically spoken about uh, Canada. I, I get Michael's bringing up a book. Is, is that your, another book you've written, Michael? This is my autographed copy from the, uh, the book launch in 2001. I got everybody who played it to sign my book. Oh, there you um, go. So no, I'm just talk- trying to think of... I'm just trying to look at the table of contents and then think about what came out in 91. So please go. Night, so oh, 1991. Start with Shakespeare, my butt. That, no, that's later, isn't it? That's no, not 1991, is it? Yep. No, well, you no, might be right. Actually, no, they're, they're, the band's actually celebrating the anniversary uh, the, this month. So yeah, you might yeah, be right. December. I'm looking, yeah. and I, I actually, and unless the Googles are wrong and Wikipedia is wrong, because of course, Wikipedia is always right, including Mike Turner's history and how Our Lady Peace was sounded, but we'll leave that one aside. Uh, 1991, December 10th, 1991, according to the Googles and Wikipedia. Oh, December. Okay, yeah. It was a late release. It was no, a late it would have made an impact in 92. Yeah. Like, I'm just thinking it was like post Bare Naked Ladies, because Bare Naked Ladies had their moment with the yellow tape, and then Lois and Lowe was like a year later. That's, that's what I'm thinking. So. Gotcha. Yeah. So I don't know. I like Northern Pikes. You know, they had a, a single rush tragically hip uh greg's favorite artist uh brian adams um is there is there anything definitive this side of the border that came out in in 1991 besides lowest of the low in december 
yeah, I was thinking of the Reostatics. Melville comes out. Oh yeah. Ah. Oh. Uh, I think it does come out '91 or like maybe late '90 and then not really till '91, somewhere around there. Um, when is Smile? Change Heart Smile is '92, right? Yes. I think that's yeah. That's when I remember seeing them live. I'm not sure. Um, Jane Sibri's "When I Was a Boy" I think is '93. Uh, that's not what that album's called. What is that album called? Anyway, um, well, our 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 Bergman self-titled album came out in '91. I can confirm that. What a character art is. He's awesome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> well, if you want to talk about art, I can. Uh, I can give you anything you want because at the moment I'm finishing up his authorized biographies. So. He told he told us you would fill us all in on everything. <laughs> <laughs> actually, did he did no, but he said he said that you would have a lot of dirt, not dirt, but uh, well, stories. That's good, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, 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 one one album from 1991 that I always have to mention is um, it's it, it's an album that pretty much nobody knows about, but um, it's the debut album by a band called Copyright who were the next stage of the band slow who inspired the entire book in the first place, Mm. um, Vancouver. Well, I like to say they were, I mean, they were, they were grunge before grunge existed, um, back in 86 or so. And, um, you know, just doing really just raw, you know, stooge stoogish kind of hard rock um you know with a real kind of snotty young you know adolescent attitude um and that's you know to me that was my that was my moment of you know the first time i heard you know the song have not been the same that you know that that got me on this whole path that eventually led, led to the book. But anyway, um, after slow kind of Im- imploded, they, uh, you know, some, uh, a couple of the guys reconstituted them, themselves as a band called copyright. And, um, the sound, it was, it was, yeah, it's, it's, it's really hard to describe that, that first album. Cause it's a real kind of amalgamation of, you know, a lot of different influences, you know, not just rock. There's, some world music influences on it um, and just, you know, amazing poetic lyrics. So, so anyway, they, um, they ended up getting a deal with, with Geffen records in, in 1991. And um, so they made their, they made their debut album. They got a huge budget. Um, they basically could have worked with any producer that they wanted to. Guy who um, made Night Fever was on the table at one point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Him and uh, and and yeah, John Paul Jones from Led Zeppelin. He was wow. he was the, he was in the running too. But um, yeah, I can't remember off the top of my head who they ended up actually working with. But but anyway, they here they were down in L.A. You know, with all this money at their disposal, and um, you know, signed to Geffen, and they the album the album was actually scheduled to come out the same week as as, as Nevermind, and. Um, but the big, you know, the big hurdle was that they were insisting that the band just be known as the copyright symbol. And David Geffen told them, you guys are fucking crazy. You expect people to call your band the copyright symbol. And they said yes. And um, David Geffen said, okay, fine, whatever you want to do. And the album came out with zero promotion. They didn't tour. Oh. And... That was pretty much the end of the road. So, and the first, the first lyric on that record, Jason, what's the first lyric on that record? A broken ladder. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So there's there there's the lesson. You know, never piss off David Geffen. You know? No, no. However, one person to piss off David Geff, Geffen was was Neil Young. Um, oh, nice. Nice. You like that segue, oh, eh, Jason? We, we didn't even plan this. <laughs> we didn't even plan this, but yeah, like I, I can't remember the three. Like there, were, I think there was like three albums because uh, yeah. Geffen said, you know, put out something Neil Young, and so I don't know. I think there was a country in there. I think Trans maybe came out then. Yeah, uh, I think it all started with with, with Trans. Yeah, yeah. Talking <laughs> uh, things. Yeah, yeah. Just just hilarious. Um, but so. You know, I think either my fr- my favorite or my second favorite Neil Young album is Ragged Glory. Um, right. 
every once in a while I'll go online and just see if there's there's a a vinyl that I can get get my hands on, but it's been out of print for, for since forever. Um, really, crazy. Yeah, but just a great great album. Um, and, and so you know, it's released in the fall of 1990, and I think after that album, he sort of got the moniker of the Godfather of Grunge. Um, yeah. Because like a year later in the, you know, the, the infamous 1991, you've got Nevermind released in September. You've got the Red Hot Chili Peppers with uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic in September. Pearl Jam, I think that was their first album in, uh, yeah, in August. Yeah, and yeah, 10 came out in August, yeah. Bad Motor Finger in October. Um, and that's just, you Use know. Your Illusion came out that month too. Yeah, and then you've got you know, sort of the hard rock stuff, right? Metallica, Use Your Illusion, one and two. Um, just, you know, in terms of the, the, the hard rock stuff. And, and then, of course, you've got Act on Baby, which, you know, different sound altogether. Uh, and then, obviously, you know, Out of Time by, by REM earlier on in the year, I think, in, the, in, the, in, in March. What influence, like, can, can we tie a line, Jason, or, or am I just a Neil Young fan hoping uh, against hope that there is a line to be drawn from Neil Young and Ragged Glory to Nirvana, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Pearl Jam and Soundgarden? What are your thoughts? Oh, sure. Well, actually, I think it all started kind of, you know, a year before that when, you know, he, he put out Freedom and mm. did the did the famous Saturday Night Live performance of uh, Rockin' in the Free World. I mean, that was, I yeah, I, I don't know if, if you remember that, but mm-hmm. that was, I mean, that that was the moment where I think, you know, the world kind of like woke up to, to Neil Young and saw, okay, this is Neil Young. This isn't, you know, this isn't the guy who, you know, was playing rockabilly and country and doing all this weird stuff. You know, when he played Rockin' in the Free World on Saturday Night Live, that was that was who he was. And, you know, mm-hmm. he, he wasn't was going to fade away. With, yeah, no. he was, you know, he, he, he was on there with his, you know, with his uh, flannel shirt and his patched up jeans and just, you know, destroyed the stage. And um, and, and I, I think literally destroyed the, the, the dressing room. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, to me, it all kind of started there. And, you know, I remember that, that vividly that, you know, from, from there, you know, that built up into the whole hype around Ragged Glory. And uh, by the time that record come out, came out, I think it was, you know, the Neil Renaissance was, you know, fully underway. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, he, you know, on that tour, you know, he got, uh, you know, he famously invited Sonic Youth to be the opening act. And, um, you know, I, I, and, and I think from, from that connection, you know, it, it, it sort of led to, well, there was one of the first uh, tribute albums. Uh, it's called The Bridge. I don't know if you remember that. That, that came mm. out around the same time too, 1990. And that was, you know, Dinosaur Jr. was on that, the Pixies. Um, you know, all kinds of, yeah. Yeah, all kinds of new bands. So, yeah, there were, yeah, around that year, you know, 90, 91, there are all these kind of connections being made with, with Neil. And, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, I still don't feel comfortable calling him, you know, the godfather of grunge. But, you know, there's, there's definitely, uh, yeah, you're, I mean, listen, you're listen not Listen to Russ Never Sleeps, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, well, I mean... So- the- Sorry, I was go just ahead. Gonna say, this is also an interesting time where it's like, um, again, like we were teenagers in the eighties and there was this weird time where, you know, all the boomers were still hanging around. Um, most of them were terrible, had a lot of trouble adjusting to the eighties, um, including Joni Mitchell, like her worst records, but, uh, uh, you know, Paul Simon's an exception, but then, um, and so is Peter Gabriel, but then in Canada, you have like, uh, Bruce Coburn making some of the best records of his career, mm. uh, right? Like like uh, Stealing Fire, uh, World of Wonders, Big Circumstance, and then you have um, uh, and Leonard Cohen also comes back with like I'm Your Man, um, and you have have these kind of like cool Canadian elder statesmen also like uh, you know again for someone at an impressionable age it's like oh yeah it's really interesting often weird music has always come out of this country and and look at where these people are now and they're growing old quite gracefully. 
Um, then of course Neil shows up after a decade of kind of fucking around, and then like Jason says, just destroys. Just destroys. And I, remember, I, I remember being eighteen and watching that Saturday Night Live thing. I think I had just turned eighteen. And I was like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about getting old because look at that guy. Look at that guy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind this minor mid-youth crisis I'm having. Look at that guy. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, guys, this this has been fun. Uh, I, I think this book in particular probably deserves like a series of, of episodes. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's a great book. Uh, Michael, looking forward uh, to your book coming out in a few months. Um, I think Greg, Greg, you you wanna you wanna close off with a question? I just, I just I did, before before we ended off, I do want to make a call out to one album that did come out in 1991. We went off. He went in the, the uh, Neil Young's vein that lane there, so um, we we do have to give a shout out to that pop album Alanis from 1991. This one. There you go. <laughs> can, can you name a song from that record? Well, I go only because it's right in front of me right now. I just want to make sure that it was ninety-one. Because a buddy of mine was one of the engineers on it. But yeah, I'm like, I'm like, you know, she she comes out with that album, and then the next album destroys. The rest is, the rest is history. <laughs> the rest. I, uh, I, there's a new um, uh, documentary in that HBO series that I haven't seen yet. Yeah, I did watch the Kenny G one, which was amazing, uh, but I haven't seen the Atlantis one yet. Nice. She's yeah. uh, anyway, she's enjoying a renaissance herself. She is. Uh, yeah. It's 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 amazing. Everybody wants to have her. Well, uh, apparently, that musical is great. I know someone who saw the musical in New York. And okay, really, oh, yeah. yeah. Someone suspicious of jukebox musicals. They they said that is how you do it properly. Interesting. Yeah. That is yeah. awesome. Cool. Yeah. Uh, Jason, uh, Michael, thank you so much. The book is have not been the same. Uh, and Jason, you, the name of your prequel to this? Yeah. Uh, it's called Whispering Pines, the Northern Roots of American Music. Awesome. And and Michael, your uh, sequel to this book coming out uh, this spring. It's called Hearts on Fire, Six Years That Changed Canadian Music, 2005. That, uh, looking forward to that. And, and please, All of both of you. ECW Press, by the way. EC, yeah, and props to, props to them for some of some great books uh, that, uh, that they've published, uh, especially around music. Jason, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, have have a good holiday and, and happy new year to the both of you. Thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you for your time, gentlemen. 